to warn you. We're in Judges 2, and it'll take us probably two weeks to get through this chapter, um, and, and that's okay. Uh, it was a chapter when I started, I, I didn't really know what to do with it, uh, but as you dig into it, you, you can really see a lot of riches there that uh, it, it just never saw before, and that's sort of the way the Bible works. So Judges chapter 2, uh, our goal is to get at least a verse um, 10 today. And uh, just to understand what it is that's going on here, uh, Book of Judges uh, has basically two introductions. Okay? Um, and so when we think of Judges, we think of the central part, it's, you know, of the actual Judges. But we get introductory material in the first two chapters. Some would add the first six verses of chapter three. But nevertheless, uh, first two chapters are introductions, and they're two different type of introductions. They don't follow chronology. They seem to contradictory in some places because of that chronology. And chapter one gives you the what's. This is what happens. Joshua died, and all the tribes tried to uh, take possession of their allotments because there were still pockets where they, 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 they owned it, if you will, but they hadn't taken possession of it. And so we saw Judah from most of chapter 1, and we saw Benjamin and Ephraim, Manasseh, and, and Dan, and uh, all the others. And chapter 2 tells us the why, because in chapter 1 we saw that they failed a lot. Judah had some initial victories, but at the end, uh, there was still some, some land they weren't able to get. Same thing with the Benjaminites and the Danites and, and all of them. And so we're, we're reading this thinking, okay, in Joshua, it was victory after victory after victory. You come in the judges, and, and they're not winning. Why is that? And the answer is found in chapter 2. And chapter 2, then, is the real introduction to the book of Judges. So chapter 1 to give us the historical uh, backdrop. Here's some of the events that's happening. Chapter 2 is going to say, this is really what's going on uh, among the people of Israel. This is a spiritual problem, and it is going to have lasting effects. So let's start here in, in the first five verses of chapter 2. Um, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but you shall become thorns in their sides, or they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they, were, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Well, right away, what we see here is a warning to uh, the people of Israel. And uh, if chapter 1 is dominated by facts, um, uh, chapter 2 is going to be dominated by uh, 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 reprimanding them. Hey, this, this isn't good enough. What route will they choose? Will they choose repentance and thus obedience, or will they choose stubborn disobedience? And if you know anything about judges, you know which one they pick. But in verse 1, we, we meet this, this character. And it's just one of those characters that keeps popping up in the Bible. And we just like, what is this guy? What in the world do we do with this guy? And that is, of course, the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Who is this cat? Now, for those of you who survived the book of Genesis, uh, we did talk about this guy. Uh, and uh, because he, he really dominates, the two books he probably dominates the most is Genesis and Judges. And I don't think that's accidental because Judges is a retelling, basically, of the Adam and Eve story and the Noah and the Ark story. 
And so it would make sense that we see themes of Genesis, particularly Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, setting of, of Israel, the promises there, that we would see some of those characters here. Um, now, start here with the word angel. Uh, basically what you have is the Greek um, uh, liter- uh, uh, transliteration of, of the word. Now, obviously, Judges is written Hebrew, but we are taking the Greek translation that obviously is a New Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, uh, like, like the city of Los Angeles, or um, our daughter's name is Evangeline. It's got angel in it, euangelion, the good news. The word means messenger. Uh, it can even describe an envoy. In fact, this word shows up all over Judges, and it is usually in the context of an envoy. Let me give you just one example to sort of prove my point. Uh, Gideon sent envoys. He sent angels. So, so what, what we've done, and, and rightly so, is we've created a class of being called angels, and there is a class of being called angels. However, sometimes we, we do overcomplicate it. Uh, it means messenger. And so it's not so much a title as, as, as to a job description. Uh, these are divine beings who are used by God to deliver messages. You'll find in the Bible these angels, that category, uh, they don't have wings. They're often confused as men. Uh, for example, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember the men? Um, uh, they think the angels inside Lot's house uh, are there for their pleasure, um, and which is an inversion of the Noah story. In, in, in the Noah story, the divine beings come down to mix with women. In the Sodom story, the men come down to mix with angels. It's an inversion of that. Um, but with that said, um, uh, here we see the messenger of the Lord. And I do think the article there is important. The angel of the Lord. This is a special class. This, this is, this is a, an important figure. And this person keeps popping up in Judges. Let me give you a few examples. Um, the next time, I believe the next time uh, he shows up is actually in a song. It's in the song of Deborah, chapter 5. Uh, a curse, Meraz says, the angel of the Lord. This is the a Deborah song. Um, now, the angel of the Lord I don't think is mentioned in the story of Deborah, but does pop up in the song. A story of Gideon, uh, he meets the angel of the Lord, uh, meets him there underneath the tree. Uh, the story of Samson is an interesting. Whenever we get there... I, I don't know what we're going to do with Samson. My lands, uh, we will we'll figure them out. But and notice here, the angel Lord appeared to uh, Samson's mother uh, and, and announces uh, a miraculous birth. This has got a lot of similarities with the story of Sarah. Um, and then uh, 10 verses later, uh, he then appears to Samson's father. Uh, and it is uh, clearly... Uh, uh, the angel, angel of, of the Lord. Let me give you uh, one other example, not in Judges, but in Joshua. Uh, this is, it's not the angel of the Lord, it's the uh, commander of the Lord. This is, of course, you know, the story of Joshua. Some dude with a big sword is out there, and Joshua wants to know, you on my side or their side? You know, do we need to throw down here or not? And uh, most agree that this is a description of the angel of the Lord. And I'm just going to roll with that. So what you have then is in the story of Joshua and Judges, the conquest narrative, you, you get this figure popping up, and he pops up as frequently as he does in, in Genesis. The question then is, who is this guy? Uh, I believe the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, and, and there's a host of reasons for that. You can do a whole study just on that. Let me give you a few reasons why I think this is. Um, first of all, uh, the angel 
accepts the name of Yahweh. Now, if you've never seen Yahweh written that way, it's Yahweh without the, the vowels. Because in Hebrew, you don't have vowels. Um, those come later to help, help us read it. So it's Yahweh. It's, it's, um, in fact, in Hebrew, uh, the vowels are actually little marks underneath the letters. It is awful. It is awful. Give me Greek any, 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 any day. Um, but let me show you what I mean by this. You know the story of the burning bush? Well, it's a really weird passage. So the question is, who's in the bush? So pull these in, in chapter 3, verse 2 of Exodus. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the bush. So who's in the bush? The angel of the Lord is. All right, we answer that question. Let's move on. And then it says, when Yahweh, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him from the bush. Who's in the bush? Is it the angel of the Lord or is it, is it Yahweh? I mean, you got to think if you're the narrator, in verse 2, it's the angel of the Lord. And two verses later, you already forgot who, who the character is. What's going on here? Uh, and then notice here in verse 6, again, two more verses. He said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so on and so forth. And then that gets to, remember Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? He gives the divine name. Who is in the bush? The angel of the Lord, or is it the Lord? Right? You, you, you can see why, why uh, Jewish uh, writers in Second Temple Judaism, who, who they don't think the Messiah has come, they developed this idea of the two Yahwehs because they're, they're trying to figure out what in the world's going on with this character. He, he is separate from Yahweh. He is one with Yahweh. Now, who's that sound like? Uh, let me give you another example. Genesis 31 is the story of Jacob at Bethel. You remember earlier, uh, Jacob, you know, uh, has the ladder scene and he, he names the place. He sets up a rock, names it Bethel, the house of God. In Genesis 31, he's, he's coming back and notice these. Then the angel of God, which is slightly different language, but most agree it's the same figure, said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Now you go down two verses later. What does the angel of God notice in that phrase, angel of God, distinction from God? He says, I am the God of Bethel. So you go back to chapter 25 or 26, whatever it is, you go back and he is, he, 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 he meets Yahweh. So is it the angel of God or is it God? <laughs> you see, it, it's, 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 it's difficult. You get the same problem with the, uh, 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 kind of the same thing with the angel of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did a whole study of Melchizedek whenever we meet him. And now this is 40 years ago now. Um, and we did a whole thing on the royal priesthood. Um, and Melchizedek is, is another one of those mis mysterious figures. Hebrews describes them in funny ways too. Let me give you one more example of this. The story of Hagar, the first time we meet the angel of the Lord, is he is directing, uh, he, he is going after a runaway slave, Hagar. I, I trust you, you're familiar with the story. The angel of the Lord said to her, so it's clearly uh, him. And then two verses later, so she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. No, no, Yahweh didn't speak to you. The angel of Yahweh spoke to you. It's both and. Uh, I think you could do something similar here right before the, um, um, uh, the Sodom story. Remember that the three beings go visit Abraham and Sarah? 
Two of them go to Sodom, more of the others, Yahweh. And, and it's, it's, it, it gets real, real interesting there. So, so I, I think that this should give it away, I think. Another one is, is he accepts worship. Let me give you uh, just two examples. One is Balaam. Uh, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and, and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way. He bowed down and fell on his face. Um, and then uh, Manoah and his wife, as, as we just saw when the angel of the Lord shows up, uh, he, they, they, uh, they put their faces to the ground, act of worship. And then it says, we going to die. We saw God. No, no, what you saw was the angel of God. Now, it's not unusual for people to, to see the Shekinah glory of the angels, like in the, in the New Testament, and, they, and, and so overwhelmed, they're, they're scared to death. Yes, but um, at no point do angels receive worship. You remember in Revelation, John does this, and he's like, what are you, get up, you know, get up, Pippin, you know, a few Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, it says, you know, worship God, not me. I'm a created being. Uh, but the angel of the Lord accepts it. Thirdly, uh, he speaks as God. Now, remember, he's the messenger of God, messenger of Yahweh. So he doesn't just speak for God. That would be incredible enough. He speaks as God. Let me give you, again, two more examples. Genesis 16, again, story of Hagar. Uh, the angel of the Lord also said to Hagar, I, I. Now, you could say, well, he's speaking on behalf of God. Okay. But, but the language suggests it is the angel of the Lord himself who will multiply the offspring. And if that isn't clear enough, you can go to chapter 22. This is the uh, sacrifice of Isaac. And it says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for, for now. And, and I know not in the context, but this is the angel of the Lord speaking. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. From me. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. He's speaking as uh, God. Uh, one last thing is uh, he is absent following the birth of Jesus. Now, here is, is where you think, no, there, there is the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. In fact, you probably find at least half a dozen references, but you're missing something. It isn't the angel of the Lord. It's an angel of the Lord. I do think that is significant. Let me give you an example here. Matthew 1.20 says so Joseph, uh, he considered these things an angel of Curios, the Lord appeared to him. And you can find several other of these if you just do a word study. Uh, you can do that from your phone if you want to. Uh, but, but what is interesting here uh, is, is here you have the divine figure, who I think is the divine one, pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, the text says he goes from Gilgal to Bokim. What is that all about? Right? Can he, can he just show up in Bokeem? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just such a weird detail. I do think there's a reason going on here. If you go back to Joshua 5, um, we, it is at Gilgal that the Hebrews make a covenant with God. And what they do is, is they, they get a Gilgal and all the males circumcise. They get circumcised. And then they have to take a few days to rest and recover. And then we get this. Today, I have rolled away so the word Gilgal. Uh, the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal. And then what follows in chapter five is they celebrate the Passover for the very first time in the promised land. This is a, an important scene in the book of Joshua because it is them receiving from God the promises of God and they enter into this covenant, which is made evident through both circumcision and the Passover together. Okay. So this, this is an important place. So when the angel of Yahweh, who I believe is Yahweh as the second person, 
And it is announced he just came from Gilgal. The reader, who, and clearly the writer of Judges assumes we know Joshua, so, so the writer wants the reader to catch the connection. Okay, something's going off. Something's going wrong with the Israelites. Something's off with them. What is it? And then when they hear the angel of the Lord is coming from Gilgal to Bochim, it's like, oh, I get it. They're breaking the covenants. This is a spiritual problem in the promised land, not a military one. Remember, you go back to chapter one, and it's all about we can't conquer them because they have uh, chariots of iron. They have superior technology. You come to chapter two, it's like, no, no, no. The problem isn't superior technology. We've got the angel, the commander of God on our side. The problem is a spiritual one. You have violated the, the covenant. So he comes from Gilgal to, to, to address them. And, um, and he reminds them of uh, their covenant. Notice the language there in verse uh, one. I brought you up from Egypt. Notice that language. Now he could be speaking as the messenger of God, certainly, but it does strike as, as the angel of the Lord is the one. By the way, it is the angel of the Lord who brought them into Egypt. Uh, he is guiding them all the way through that. I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So, so you, you see that the covenant is the central issue here. He is saying, God has kept his end of the bargain. He's redeemed you from slavery. He's led you and escorted you through the wilderness. And he's brought you to, to the promised land. All you had to do was follow and worship me. I even gave you a rule book. Just use the instructions. Right? And, and the land would be cleansed. And, and, and you, you would have this whole land of flowing milk and honey for yourself. The problem is, and there in the rest of verse 2, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now pause there. Those who survived Genesis, the word voice, obeying a voice, should, should, should jump off the page to you. What was God's criticism of Adam? You listened to the voice of your wife. Now, what it's not saying is, men, you shouldn't listen to your, your wife. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is, instead of listening to the voice of God, you listen to the voice of someone else. And you allowed their message to trump the commandments of God. Later, Abraham will be criticized for doing something similar to Sarah. Um, and and, and there are, there's uh, several other examples of that in the Bible. So he's saying, you, like your first father, Adam, did not listen to my voice. Instead, you went the way of sin. You have broken uh, my, my covenants. Uh, so, so they've come into the, the promised land. And instead of cleansing it, they have compromised with those who they were to, to, to address. So they not only uh, uh, spared some of the Canaanites, they tolerated paganism and welcomed them as their neighbors. Go to the end of chapter 1, what you'll find is the Danites couldn't beat them, so they moved in right next door with them. And what always happens is not that the Israelites uh, just lead them to, to Jesus, but rather it's the Canaanites lead them into their paganism. This is still true today. When you see someone do halfway discipleship, it's a matter of time before it's no discipleship. This is still still the case today. Now, we should pause here and, and be clear. God isn't necessarily calling for ethnic cleansing the way we think of it today. Uh, we know this, f f for one, because Rahab and her family are with the Israelites. They're Canaanites. We also know that the Kenites we saw last week from Midian, they're with the Israelites. Remember, they're going to camp out with, with the people of Judah. So it's not like just kill everybody you see, just kill indiscriminately. But rather, um, 
what we have here is they were to cleanse the land of idolatry. And this is, this is the calling of Israel for the rest of, the, of, of their history in the Old Testament. Josiah will do this eventually. And the other kings will tear down the altars from the high places. This is what, this is what they're, they're supposed to do. This isn't an imperial, imperialistic conquest. Um, and we know that because they weren't supposed to take plunder and slaves. They have one job. Cleanse the land of giants, of paganism, of idolatry. Get rid of all that sort of stuff so you can worship the Lord uh, in, in truth. Uh, so the angel is condemning them for this halfway discipleship. Um, but due to their refusal, uh, notice what uh, the angel says in verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. Well, that, that we, we just saw that in chapter 1. They, they can't get rid of them. In fact, remember the Danites went in and not only were they unable to defeat them, but the people they were trying to defeat turn around and attack them. You know, um, so uh, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And what we get here is actually a, a good insight into idolatry. Notice two things that the angel warns them. Um, because because they won't, the land won't be cleansed of it, these are the two problems you're going to have as long as you exist. And this is true for us. If, if when we tolerate idolatry in our hearts, you will have these two problems. One is a thorn, the other is a snare. A thorn is uh, a pest that makes us miserable. Uh, a thorn can take something that is uh, a good thing and ruin it. Every person here, uh, may remember the first time they saw a rose and they thought, mommy would like a rose. And what did you do? You reached down there for that rose and you discovered the joy of thorns. Or maybe you thought you would go wild out in the woods, uh, be a man, right? And just go running through the woods and you discovered thorns. And, and thorns are something that um, are real pests and they ruin everything. What should be enjoyed and what should be good uh, turns into a source of real frustration. This is what happens when we turn good things into God things, is, is we elevate things above the status God has given them, and, and we're wanting something from them they can never be. And as a result, instead of giving us what it is we long for, they actually become the primary source of our misery. If you turn your spouse into this, this person that you've elevated to the status of the divine, they're going to give you joy and lasting love and peace and all that, will actually be a real thorn to you because they're going to be the source of all the problems in your life. Because you've elevated them above than what they're supposed to. If it's your children, if it's your job, if it's your bank account, if it's your career, if, if it's your reputation, if it's whatever it is, we do this. Um, and, and that becomes a thorn uh, to us. But not only that... Uh, idols become snares. So it isn't that um, just that idols rob us of joy and love and contentment, but that we become enslaved to them. And idolatry and sin in general is slavery. Uh, Jesus makes this clear in the Gospel of John. Um, and so what you have here is people, because they refuse to be to cleanse the land of, of idols, they will succumb to these idols. And instead of having a promised land flowing with milk and honey, they'll have a land flowing with misery and slavery. So they have freed slavery from the Egyptians only to uh, return the slavery among the Canaanites. This is, what, this, 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 this is what idolatry and sin does. 
is why we have to be cleansed from it. Now, give them some credit. Verses four to five is they, they initially, at least this generation, they respond repentance. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weepers, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they responded with repentance. Here, the idea that they, that they weep. Uh, and so clearly, uh, this generation wants to honor God, and they are recognizing they have failed. Uh, and that language of this generation is important, as we'll see. Um, now, uh, the problem is, is, is I don't see any evidence that they are tearing down altars. So, so I think they're trying to have it both ways. God is angry at them, and so they're going to do all the ritual stuff. I'm sorry, uh, please help us. But they still want this foot over here that says, yeah, but my pagan neighbor's kind of a nice guy. And hey, it, doesn't, it won't hurt if he prays to the fertility gods and the crops come in. But, you know, I'm really this guy over here. You know, and, and they're wanting to have it both ways. So they have weeping and repentance. What they don't have is the act of repentance of getting rid of the sin. Most of us still do this today. We're like, dear God, please forgive me. And then you just go back and right back into it. We think of repentance as a second chance. But really, repentance should be an act of cleansing, confession and cleansing. And then, of course, they, they, they make sacrifice, which is an act of atonement. So that's the warning, is you guys got to get rid of this stuff. Will they obey? No, fam, they ain't going to obey. Uh, and that's where we get the act of disobedience, verses 6 to 10. Um, notice verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, uh, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. Well, that was chapter 1. They're going to go to their, their allotments that you get in the second half of Joshua. And now they're like, okay, we've repented. We've made our sacrifices. We heeded. Now let's go get it. But verse 7, but the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, that means he had no father, but um bump the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, uh, if you're reading this and you're not lost, um, then you're not paying attention. Remember that when we read the Bible, it was not written by 21st century Americans exclusively for 21st century Americans. Because if, if you're following along and then all of a sudden Joshua dies, you're thinking, didn't he die in the book of Joshua? <laughs> Okay, in fact, in the very first verse, guess who died? After the death of Joshua. <laughs> That's how the book began. When Joshua dismissed the people in chapter two. Dude's dead. He's done died twice. <laughs> now he's gonna die a third time. Because remember, this is, this is ancient Near Eastern literature, and, and it, chronology isn't as important to them as, as it might be to us. Um, we talked about that some last week. So, so what we have then is, is the first five verses is the generation of Joshua. They're seeing already that they're not taking possession of the land as they should. And so when you get Joshua dies, that is, uh, in the narrative, the death of that generation, if you will. I actually remember Joshua's of the generation of Egypt. It's Joshua and Caleb are the last two. Uh, in fact, if, if you look at verses 6 to 9, 
and you know your Bible, it's going to sound familiar because it mirrors in many ways the book of Joshua when Joshua dies. <laughs> Poor guy. They just can't, um, can't keep but referencing his, his death here. Um, so you can see, I'm, I'm not going to read that. You can see the parallels. Um, but, but what the writer wants us to do is to associate the death of Joshua with the decline of Israel. So you had Moses, everything's going great. Joshua, everything's going great. But when he dies, there's no one to replace him as the leader of, of united Israel. And so everyone sort of goes their own direction. And what you get at the generation level is, is the start of decline. At the same time, this is Joshua 24. I think the writer is referencing this almost verbatim. You see the reference to uh, he died at 110 years old. He's buried at Timnath Sarah, um, uh, Ephraim, Gaash. Uh, he served the, you know, all that is found right here in, in, in Judges 24. But this forces us to go back to Joshua 24 because in Joshua 24, the writer wants us to heed Joshua's final warning. And here it is. I, I took a lot of it out. Uh, if you forsake the Lord, Joshua said, and serve foreign gods, then he, Yahweh, will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And in verses 22 um, says, um, oh, we will, we will worship the Lord. We will follow the Lord. And we, we bind ourselves in covenant today. We are witnesses unto ourselves. We want to follow Jesus. And then he says, um, then put away your idols that are among you, which makes you wonder, what are they doing among the Israelites now? Maybe it's a generic term to say, if you ever find them among you, get rid of them. But put them away from you. Uh, and incline your heart to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because Baal is the God of the Canaanites. Ashtaroth, the God of the Canaanites. Yahweh is the God of Israel, and this is his land. So get rid of these idols. And so the writer is saying, you, you remember that? You remember that story? You remember how they took a witness unto themselves? Look at verse 10. We just saw it. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, the generation of Joshua, if you will. They're gone. They're dead. That great generation that weathered the wilderness. Many of them were born in the wilderness. They weren't born uh, as slaves. They were born of liberated slaves. And they said, look, we, we, we grew up on the stories of what God did in Egypt. And we saw firsthand the cloud that led us by day and the fire that led us by night. We ate of the manna and that God has brought us in here to, to cleanse the land of the giants and the idols. We here today say that God is the God of Israel and that we will worship only him. And then they died. And the next generation came up. And that's the generation that creates all the problems starts. So within a few verses, we basically have three generations. Um, and then we'll see starting um, next week that we, 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 get this, we get this transition of generations. And that seems to be the pattern in the Bible. That, um, that we move from the generation of Joshua to the generation of half-disciples to the generation of idolaters. And that is when you get, there was no king in Israel and everyone did was right in their own eyes. As we'll see in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, God raises up judges, Othniel and Shamgar and Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Barak and all these others. 
But that trajectory, I think, is, is, is worth us for our remainder time to actually to meditate on a little bit. How do we go from we are witnesses unto ourselves to everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Took three generations. Um, there's a famous quote. I wish Lonnie was here because it's of Ronaldus Magnus, Ronald Reagan, uh, for you pagans. Uh, here it is. Um, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. I use this quote a lot. This very Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, um, this, is, this is a classic American quote. I mean, this is America at its best. Um, but like we talked to our kids about this, that, that the world you've inherited, I don't recognize and I'm not quite yet 40. I've got a few more months. And, and when I listen to someone like Brother Ed talk, I realize that the America I inherited is not the world he grew up in. Uh, that that um, um, it's and what, what's happened, and what you see is a decline. As as you see post Christian society, you see a decline of really just civility, things we took for granted, like boy and girl, um, um, uh, security of a home, a mom and a dad, uh, discipline and respect, and and all of these uh, things you can't regulate. When they go away, it's one generation after another. What do you get after three generations of no-fault divorce? You get a generation that doesn't believe in marriage. And if you don't believe in marriage, what do you believe in? It's the self. Because now marriage is going to rob me of, of, of my own self-fulfillments. Uh, and, and, and so uh, I think Reagan's right. Um, and, and there are times when we, we say to our kids this. Like, of course, I would point to 9-11 where things really went uh, went change, and then our kids are going to are going to say, "I remember a little bit before COVID," and then all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but um, this is very, by the way, um, this is if you quote Reagan, then uh, that gets the natives happy. But this is a theological thing that uh, pastors, theologians, scholars talk about quite a bit. Um, I've got several books back here um, that, that that go in some detail with this. Um, we've long believed in this sort of trajectory because it's a biblical concept. We see it here in Judges. Um, the, the pattern you, is usually articulated as the first, uh, first generation believes the gospel. And in believing the gospel, they pass on to the next generation, which then assumes the gospel. And because they assume the gospel, you get the third generation, those who have neglected the gospel. And one of the easiest ways to show this is how, how do we think biblically and theologically about uh, social involvement. If you want to throw politics in that, you can, but really just uh, social issues, whether it's helping the poor or, or fighting for justice and all this sort of stuff. What you're going to find is the same trajectory. And actually, my thesis is on a subject like this, um, is, is you'll start with the gospel. Uh, you'll start with a generation that says, okay, we understand the gospel, and that's called us into the world. But, but, but what the next generation sees is this combination of gospel and, 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 and action. And so they assume the gospel part and they prioritize the action parts. Well, what does the next generation see? They see the action part and not so much the gospel part. So the gospel then gets neglected because now the gospel gets tied to the action part. 
unless you're helping the poor, unless you're fighting injustice, unless you're doing these things, you're not a good Christian. Doesn't this sound familiar? Because this has been the, 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 the experiment of liberal theology forever. Because liberal theology gave up the theology. And all they had was social action. And, and when it only becomes social action, there's no gospel girding the action. So you begin to follow the ways of culture, which is pagan and idolatrous. I'll give you this in a quote that can summarize it better than I can. One particular analysis goes like this. The first generation believed and proclaimed the gospel and thought there were certain social entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel and advocated the entailments. Like, well, we all know Jesus died for our sins, but I've got a neighbor here who can't feed his family. Don't tell me about, about Jesus if we're not helping that. And you're thinking, yeah, we should help people, right? And I, I believe that. And then, then that gets turned into, well, if we're not helping people, then we're not Christians. And, and Christianity is now tied to, not to the doctrine that led us into the world, but simply of the action. And you notice it's not tied to anything uh, that is uniquely Christian. You could be a Muslim and, and you could be a, a Jewish. You could be Buddhist. You could be atheist, but you're still a good Christian kid. Because you're fighting injustice, you're fighting racism, you're fighting global warming, uh, sorry, climate change. You're fighting these things. So the third generation denied the gospel and all that they were left with were the entailments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still still it's still too expensive, still it's too complicated. But you can think the Christian influence of adoption and orphan care for addressing that issue. Um, so I, I, let me just warn conservative Christians here because I'm seeing this pattern already. Conservatism was tied directly to Christianity for the longest time. In fact, it would be argued that you couldn't come to a conservative uh, perspective apart from Christianity. Limited governments, uh, free and open trade, stuff like that. I'm noticing something now. Um, and, and that is that Christianity is sort of assumed not as something that is true, but something that is helpful. If we had time, I can give you example after example of this. Right. Yeah. Yes. And that's I believe that's true. But 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 you need 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 to see what the trajectory is now. So, so I, I spent several weeks ago. We talked about the true, the good and the beautiful, that the true creates the good. Which is what you're talking about. If, if the gospel is true, then marriages thrive and children grow up healthy and community benefits and we prioritize education and you know, all that sort of stuff. Because of the true, you get the good. And when you get the true and good right, you get the beautiful. But what I'm seeing among conservatives, the, the left has gone just, that's why they have nothing beautiful now. I mean, look at what's happened to Disney. Um, just to give you an example, or art in general, all art across the street. Have you seen a beautiful building been put up in the last 20 years? We're in Frankfurt. There have been a lot of new buildings, all state buildings. <laughs> Are any of them pretty? No, that's my point. Okay, so... Um, but among conservatives, what I'm seeing is, is the truth of Christianity is now iffy. 
What we want from Christianity isn't the theological doctrine. What we want is, is it beneficial? So what, what you'll get among conservatives is, look, what we're losing in this country is the idea of equality in favor of equity. And all conservatives say, we don't like that, we want equality. You ask, where does equality come from? Well, it comes from Christianity. Then you say, do you believe Christ was risen from the dead? No, but thanks to Christianity, we, we have a functional understanding of equality. I mean, just look, look at all the conservative heroes right now, almost all of them, you're going to see this. You're going to see this. Is, is Christianity is going to be assumed, and then what happens with the next generation is you get a type of conservatism that doesn't need any of it. And then whatever it is you call conservative is essentially gone. I know we have in our head that conservatives are safe because we conserve and we don't change anything. That's not the way it works. And what happens is we lose the beautiful. And the right is becoming as animus as the left. And we're adding to this warfare stuff and we'll turn to people who are going to add to this warfare stuff. Why? Because we're giving up the truth. I do hold out hope that there's, there are enough uh, people who are realizing I've always assumed marriage is good, gender is, is given to us by nature, and nature is God. I've always assumed this. Why do I assume this? And they're making a turn to realize the West has been built by Christianity. But let me just say that, that this is a, something, we don't talk about a lot in churches, but this is clearly a biblical thing. That one generation, their primary responsibility is to pass the truth of the gospel to the next. Let me give you one other way to, to, to demonstrate this. If we were to go up to a group of Southern Baptist, conservative, young adults, teenagers and young adults, our people, Southern Baptists, they're all from Georgia, even more, the more Southern we are, all right? Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, real Christians, okay? And we, had, and we said something like, which would you rather happen? The elimination of a temporal evil, disease, poverty for a family, something like that. Would you rather have that or the salvation of a soul? What do you think the average 20-something would choose? They would choose the elimination of the social evil because we already assume the gospel. We prioritize the action. So we have to prioritize the gospel the thing we want most for America is not for someone to win an election. We want America to repent, not like the Jews do in this chapter, but the way they do it in the days of Josiah. And we'll have more to say about Josiah next week. Well, I am probably in enough trouble. Which, by the way, let me add, just add another one. People are more likely to leave their faith and their church than they are their political party. Your political party has given you more reason to abandon it than your church has. But why, why do we tolerate corruption and nonsense from our political parties? But if someone hurts my feelings between Sunday school and morning worship, I will never come back and I'll tell everyone else don't have anything to do there. All it takes is those three generations. All right, I'm in trouble. Yeah, Don? Yeah. 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 Or I fell in love with a pagan, which is what you're getting with the Canaanites and Israelites here. 
I don't know how many people who have abandoned the faith because they fell in love. They fell in lust. So, all right, how about we pray? Don, will you close this in prayer? So when it comes to political cultural involvement, that's it's a matter of, of real debate among Christians throughout all of its history. How far is too far? How far is not far enough? Um, so your vote is one. Your prayers is a vital one. But if we really want to change 